Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. Real people experiencing real change because of a real Savior. Around 324 AD, the Christian church in the West experienced something for the very first time. Something that it had dreamed of, but probably never actually thought possible. It experienced safety. See, from the moment that the church began, followers of the way of Jesus had been under the threat of imprisonment, torture, and death, first from Jewish leadership and then from the most powerful empire the world had known. And sure, waves of persecution ebbed and flowed over those 300 years, as did the nature of its cruelty. But whenever the Roman Empire was in danger, be it from disease, famine, or barbarian tribes, Christians were the first to be blamed. After all, they were the ones who refused to worship the gods of Rome and who bowed to a different king named Jesus. However, in the fourth century, this all changed, and it changed dramatically. Emperor Maximin, who had revived one last bit of persecution, was defeated by a man named Constantine, who became emperor in 324. And now there is debate among historians whether Constantine was actually a follower of Jesus, but at the very least, he was incredibly supportive of the church. And so in a very short period of time, Christians who had to watch their words lest their neighbors suspect them, Christians who had to meet in secret, often amongst the dead, lest they be discovered, Christians who lived life knowing that life could end cruelly for themselves and for the ones they loved, Christians whose lives were worthless to the world but their deaths cheap entertainment, these people now had the freedom to openly follow Jesus without fear. And one of the Christians who experienced this transition was a man named Eusebius, and he's famous for writing a book called The History of the Church. And he tries to follow the movement of Jesus' people from the apostles up until Constantine. And having been born in 260 AD, Eusebius spent most of his life as a Christian under the threat and abuse of, of Rome. However, when he was about 45 years of age, he saw this dramatic shift. And here's how he describes it in his book. He says, after those terrifying, darksome sights and stories, I was privileged to see and celebrate such things as in truth many righteous people and martyrs of God before us desired to see on earth and did not see, and to hear but did not hear. People had now lost all fear of their former oppressors. Day after day they kept dazzling festival, light was everywhere, and people who once dared not look up now greeted each other with smiling faces and shining eyes. They danced and sang in city and country alike, giving honor first of all to God, our sovereign Lord, as they had been instructed, and then to the pious emperor with his son so dear to God. Old troubles were now forgotten, and all irreligion passed into oblivion. Good things present were enjoyed, those yet to come eagerly awaited. Also under Constantine, Christians began to hold power in society and to be preferred for positions of authority. And so naturally, people converted in droves because if you wanted to get ahead in the world, now you claimed to follow Jesus. And so popularity actually began to favor the church. However, despite Eusebius and others eagerly awaiting good things to come, a different sort of movement began, one that took a little while to notice. 
Because despite having found safety and having become important in the culture, followers of the way of Jesus began slipping off into the wildernesses of Europe, Asia Minor, and the deserts of Africa. Despite getting what they had longed for for over 300 years, many found that somehow life was now less, and they went to the wilderness in order to find something more. And what started as a movement of individuals gradually grew into the establishment of communities out in the wilderness. And eventually these coalesced into the monastic movement of the Middle Ages. And it's easy to look back and think that these people must have been crazy to give up a life of comfort and safety that they had never experienced before. And yet while enduring persecution, they had lived a life necessarily connected with God because he was the sole reason that they were in danger. And when that danger passed, when comfort and freedom were no longer dreams but realities, they found that life became filled with a lot of other things instead. And gradually, the noise of life drowned out what mystics have called the silences of heaven. And so Christianity became a social statement to appease this new authority rather than a close relationship with the crucified Jesus. And so people began to seek out the wilderness in order to connect with and rekindle their relationship with God. In C.S. Lewis's classic satire, The Screwtape Letters, the demon Screwtape describes hell as this kingdom of noise. He writes to his nephew saying, music and silence, how I detest them both. How thankful we should be that ever since our father, Satan, entered hell, no square inch of infernal space and no moment of infernal time has been surrendered to either of those abominable forces. But all has been occupied by noise. Noise, the grand dynamism, the audible expression of all that is exultant, ruthless, and virile. Noise, which alone defends us from silly qualms and despairing scruples and impossible desires. We will make the whole universe a noise in the end. We have already made great strides in this direction as regards the earth. The melodies and silences of heaven will be shouted down in the end. But I admit, we are not yet loud enough or anything like it. Research is in progress. Now, Lewis wrote that in the mid-20th century, long before we had anything like the computer or the internet or the smartphone or social media. And to be cheeky, perhaps that was the research in progress. And yet, technology actually has been a very great thing. It makes life more convenient, more productive, more connected. Even as Pastor Josh mentioned last week, today we have more combined resources about the Bible, more combined knowledge than at any point in history. And we have that all accessible at our fingertips and we can get it within seconds. Like that is amazing. And on a personal note, without technology, there's a good chance I'd still be single because Janelle lived in Sacramento, California. I lived in the rural deserts of central Utah where you walked around to Walmart for fun. And (laughs) they're great people there, but still Walmart was the one entertainment. Um, And so, Our whole relationship, dating, even engaged, happened through text messaging, phone calls, and FaceTime. And it is a weird but true fact that I am married because of the iPhone. (laughs) And so with that said, yes, life is more convenient, more productive, more connected. And 
Yet, at the very same time, studies keep showing over and over and over again that we are also more distracted, more overwhelmed, and lonelier than ever thanks to technology. And this has led to a unique situation, especially regarding faith and spirituality. In his article titled, I Used to Be a Human Being, which is a fantastic title, uh, Andrew Sullivan, who is a writer, blogger, political commentator for the New York Magazine, talks about his distraction sickness. There are a lot of fascinating insights in this article. I recommend reading it yourselves. But in describing where we ended up today, Sullivan writes this. He says, modernity slowly weakens spirituality by design and accident in favor of commerce. It downplayed silence and mere being in favor of noise and constant action. The reason we live in a culture increasingly without faith is not because science has somehow disproved the unprovable, but because the noise of secularism has removed the very stillness in which faith might endure or be reborn. In his book, Your Future Self Will Thank You, author Judic notes, the average American now spends almost 11 hours a day staring at a screen. Throw in eight hours of sleep, which we should be getting but aren't, and that leaves a paltry six hours in which we risk making eye contact with another human being. Just regarding the smartphones, Drew Dix notes that Americans check them on average of 150 times a day and stare at them from approximately a quarter of their waking hours. And if you think that's not you, they give you a screen report every week now. Now, it's clear to both Christian and non-Christian thinkers alike that we live in, a na- or in an age of noise and distraction. And both Christian and non-Christian thinkers recognize that this is a problem. Andrew Sullivan says again, this new epidemic of distraction is our civilization's specific weakness. And its threat is not so much to our minds even as they shapeshift under the pressure. The threat is to our souls. At this rate, if the noise does not relent, we might even forget we have any. Now, Sullivan wrote that back in 2016, before we had two contentious elections, before we had a pandemic we were told to isolate. And so how much worse, how much more dire must this situation be today? Yet even earlier in 1999, Catholic writer Ronald Rollheiser described it this way, saying, Today, a number of historical circumstances are blindly flowing together and accidentally conspiring to produce a climate within which it is difficult not just to think about God and or to pray, but simply to have any interior depth whatsoever. We, for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. We have a problem, but what is the solution? Do we slip off into the wilderness and live out there like the 4th century believers? Do we start a commune or homestead out in the hills? Do we become a monk or nun? How do we break the shackles of noise and distraction that come with life in this world? And for those of us not called to such extremes, for those of us who do believe that our cities and our schools, our workplaces, even social media, need followers of Jesus, and who have an inkling that Jesus is telling us that we are to be those people, 
then is there a way for us not to be lost in the pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness of life? Unsurprisingly, enter Jesus, but surprisingly, enter the wilderness. Now, you're probably familiar with Jesus' most famous excursion into the wilderness. After being baptized in the Jordan, Jesus kind of initiates his ministry out there. This is Mark's version in chapter 1. It is the short one. Verse 12 says, At once the Spirit sent Jesus out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Now, what's going to be important for us is that the place Jesus is sent to, which we call the wilderness, in Greek is the Eremos, which is really just an uninhabited place. It's a place empty of people, so it's not necessarily the desert. And here, in this wilderness, Jesus seems to go through this extreme trial of hunger, isolation, and physical and spiritual temptation. Then, getting back from the wilderness, or the Eremos, Mark then goes into Jesus' first really big day of ministry. And so after picking up some disciples while out on a stroll by the Lake of Galilee, Jesus comes to a town called Capernaum. He teaches in the synagogue. He chucks out a demon. He goes to Peter's house and heals his mother-in-law. And then once word spreads, Jesus spends the rest of the day healing people and chucking out more demons. And you couldn't really ask for a better start to his movement because people are astounded at his teaching. They're astounded at his authority as a teacher and also as this healer and miracle worker. And we read this today, and we then expect Jesus to maximize on his popularity, right? He'd network, and he'd reconnect with the people that he's healed and delivered. He'd follow up on his teaching, and he'd solidify his popularity and his following. And yet, instead, we find something incredibly strange after all this. The very next day, we read this. Verse 35 says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Now what the NIV here translates as the solitary place, or the NLT as the isolated place, or the ESV as the desolate place, it's all actually the same word for the place where Jesus had just spent 40 days and nights tempted by the devil with the wild beasts. It's the Eremos. And the reason we get a variety of translations is that this time the word is just describing the type of place that Jesus sought out. And so essentially, the very next day, early in the morning, Jesus finds himself a wilderness-like place. And then once his disciples do find him there, he takes that small band and leaves. But just notice something strange. Because the wilderness, just a few paragraphs earlier in Mark, looks like a place of suffering for Jesus, a place of physical and spiritual danger. And yet the very first chance that Jesus gets after a wild day of work, he goes right back to the wilderness. So what is going on? Now, this snippet in Mark isn't the only time we find that Jesus does this. In Luke chapter 5, where after another busy day of teaching and healing, we read this about Jesus. 5.15 says, Yet the news about Jesus spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places, to Aramos-like, wilderness-like places, 
and prayed. So notice that he actually often withdrew to these types of places to spend time with the Father. This wasn't just a happenstance in Mark 1. This is actually a full-on habit for Jesus. And in fact, the busier he becomes and the noisier life grows, the more the Gospels highlight Jesus' withdrawal to the wilderness or places like it, whether it's up on a hill or up on Gethsemane. And that's normally the opposite for us because the busier we get, the more noise we then tend to step into. And yet catch this, Jesus needed time alone with the Father. Jesus needed time alone with the Father. Now, cards out on the table, I hear this and I get a little bit excited because I'm introverted. In fact, of all the things I don't remember about my childhood, which is about 95% of it, the one thing I, not the one thing, one of my strongest memories is actually the very moment I discovered I was introverted. So I used to play basketball when I was younger, and in elementary school, one weekend, my parents had to drop me off 30 minutes early before a game. I'm not sure what they had to do. But I was pretty nervous because I'd never been alone for myself with that long, or for that long with nothing to do. Normally, I had Legos. And so I go in, and, um, and there's a crowd milling out in the foyer, and so I go stand in the corner. And that probably should have been my first clue. However, standing there in the corner of Maple Grove Elementary School in Battleground, Washington, I made this amazing discovery. I could hear myself talk in my head. It blew my mind, almost literally. Like, I still, again, don't remember much, but I, can, I still can feel that sense of euphoria from that moment. Now, not too long after this, a girl from my class um, recognized me, and she had also been dropped off early to watch some basketball games. And if I'm honest, I had a crush on this girl, and I thought that she was by far the cutest girl in my, my class. And so being lonely, she decided to come join me in my corner. And you'd think life could not have gotten better for fifth grade Sky. And yet the entire time she was with me, I could not wait for her to leave me alone. Not because I was shy, not because I didn't like her, not because I didn't have a crush on her. I just wanted to talk to myself. <laughs> and so, I, I mean, I was a young gentleman in the fifth grade, and so I politely answered her questions, but she began to realize that I was weirdly enjoying my corner more when she wasn't there, and so she left. And I was super excited to watch her leave because then I could get back to the important business of talking alone. And I stayed single a very long time. <laughs> so, yes, I am an introvert. The cards are down on the table. We all know this. Um, and so I hear that Jesus needs to be alone fantastic thing. However, there is a very big problem with that because Jesus' withdrawal isn't actually about being alone. In fact, Jesus probably wasn't even an introvert. He was always around and with people. So no, Jesus' withdrawal to quiet places wasn't about isolation. It was actually about being fully present with God, away from the noise and distractions of life. Now, again, we see this on another incredibly busy day for Jesus. He had just sent his disciples out to, he, uh, to teach, heal, and check out demons, as you do. And on their return, he saw that they needed rest and time to connect with him. And so picking up in Mark chapter 6, verse 30, we read this. 
The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet, wilderness-like place and get some rest. And so they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary, wilderness-like place. However, things don't go according to plan because of seeing them leave in a boat, a crowd recognizes them and races along the coastline to make their wilderness very much full. And now, if I was Jesus, I would have thanked them politely for wanting to see me. That's great. That's cool. Thank you. But then I'd tell them a little less politely to please leave me alone. I, I got in a boat to escape you guys, and now you're here. And yet Jesus doesn't do that. He instead sits them down. He teaches them way far into the, the day, and then he miraculously feeds 5,000 people. And again, though, busy day for Jesus, we should not be surprised that it means it's time for him to be alone with the Father. And so 645 says, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. And I don't know about you, but going up into the hills in the wilderness is a wilderness-like place to me, par excellence. And so here's the point that I keep drumming on. Jesus did not need to be alone. He needed to be with the Father. And he needed this often. Now, if this is true about Jesus, what does it say about us? Well, for centuries, the church has identified Jesus' going away to wilderness-like places as a practice called silence and solitude where we get away from the noise and distractions of life. And throughout the history of the church, there has been this trident, so to speak, of three practices to help stave off the noise of life, silence, solitude, and fasting. But the idea of quiet and of being alone are so intertwined that many followers of the way just consider them a single practice. So we'll talk about silence and solitude. Now, we have to carefully define what this practice is and what it is not. Richard Foster, in his helpful book, Celebration of Discipline, not an exciting title, strongly separates solitude from things like loneliness and emptiness. Or loneliness and isolation, sorry. Those things lead to emptiness. And side note, that's really the end goal of Eastern mysticism that we're finding in our culture today. It's this idea of being isolated and emptying yourself. Instead, silence and solitude is actually about inner fulfillment. It's about being filled instead with the presence of God rather than the noises and distractions of life. Again, it's not about being alone and empty. It's about being present and filled. And this is incredibly important for us Christians. In fact, nearly if not all the people I have come across who talk about the importance of the spiritual practices in the lives of Jesus' followers, they all point to silence and solitude as the foundational element of the Christian life. Henry Nouwen, the renowned Catholic theologian, plainly says it this way. He says, without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. We do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set some time aside to be with God and to listen to him. Now, he, and I as well in quoting him, are not trying to guilt anyone into it. It's just a matter of fact. Because if following Jesus is about relationship with God, then we need to relate with 
And in an ordinary relationship, this is immediately apparent. Because if you heard that I never spent time with Janelle, you would question whether I took my marriage seriously. Or if I did spend time with her, but I was constantly distracted, watching videos, playing games, doom scrolling Instagram, AirPod in my ear, whatever. Like I'm not gonna be in a much better boat because I'm not truly present with her. And it's not saying that those things are necessarily bad, but if I never consistently spend time being with her, that's a problem. And none of us would question that as a problem because we all recognize that healthy, meaningful relationships require time together. And it's the same with God. Now, this is all well and good. And we can, keep t- we can talk more about why this is necessary and how important it is for us. But in all honesty, is this even possible for us? especially today, because we live in this age of noise and distraction, and we are busier than ever. Some of us in our community are college kids taking a very full load. Some of us are single parents with small children who require so much time and attention and love. Some of us are working multiple jobs just to get by. And some of us are teenagers navigating family life and expectations, loads of homework, and somehow having friends on top of it all. Except Corbin. So is this hopeless? Is this even possible for us to practice today? It feels hopeless, just to be honest. It feels hopeless, but the short answer is no, it's not. It is possible, I think. And so here are some of the things that have helped me along the way as I've muddled through this practice. First, the wilderness is a scary place. For the last couple of weeks, I started reading books by a guy named Jim Corbett who talks about his adventures in India in the 1920s. And one of his activities was going off into the jungle at night to hunt man-eating tigers and leopards. Find a tree, climb up it, and you would wait for said tiger to come looking for you. That is terrifying, but that's not the wilderness that we're talking about. The wilderness that Jesus frequently sought out was a place just empty of distraction and noise. And yet this is still terrifying, because often when we get rid of the noise outside of us, we are confronted by the noise within us. We find that the man-eaters aren't out in the hills, but they're in the spaces of our soul. That the things that we've buried beneath the noise, our wounds, our desires, our feelings, those are awaiting to attack us. And I suspect that our biggest hesitancy to to enter the wilderness is because we fear what we are going to find inside. And even for we who are introverts, who enjoy being alone, that time is often still filled with distractions, good or bad, but distractions all the same. But again, remember, going into the wilderness is not about being alone. It's not about being isolated. It's not being about being empty. It's about finding and being with God. Another thing about the wilderness is that it doesn't have to be exotic. It's not a commune out in the Egyptian desert. It's not one of those Instagram photos of someone sitting on top of a mountain. 
right? In fact, it's just a place where we can be undistracted with God, at least from external distractions as much as possible. And for each of us, this is going to look different. And it's probably even going to look different in the various seasons of your own life. And so right now, your wilderness-like place could be your bedroom. It could be the office early in the morning. It could be your car, or if you're desperate, the bathroom does work. It could be also the, the path around Lake Sacagawea. It could be a bench on campus. It could be a corner chair in the library. Right? The wilderness doesn't have to be exotic. In fact, the wilderness probably looks disappointingly ordinary and boring. Second helpful thing is that for important things, we don't find time, we have to make it. And here's what I mean. So if we try to add another activity on top of all of our, the other things we're trying to do, we're probably in trouble. Because as much as we don't like to know this, we can only cram so many things into 24 hours. And so instead, something often needs to give. You add by subtracting, essentially. And so if we take an honest look at our lives, odds are there are some things that aren't super important that are taking quite a bit of time, such as social media, TV, Instagram, and whatnot. And nowadays our phones will tell you how much time that is taking from you, and it's discouraging. However, we often feel like we need those times of distraction because they at least bury the noise that we're trying to run from. And yet more than distraction, we need time alone with Jesus. And so maybe making time for you is something simple as spending 10 minutes less a day on Facebook, maybe. Or maybe it's committing to one less thing in the evenings than you have been. Or if you have kids, maybe they don't need five extracurricular activities during the week. Or maybe if you look at this season of life and you're like, there's absolutely nothing that I can, can give up. There is still one more thing, and it pains me to say it. You can sleep a little bit less. Right? You can go to bed 10 minutes later. You can wake up 10 minutes earlier. And in that time of quiet, when everyone else is asleep, there you can find time alone to be present with God. I promise you, you will survive. And again, you need this. Last thing, being alone with God does not mean reading your Bible for an hour or a cheesy devotional or praying until you sweat blood. It's simply being with Jesus. And throughout the history of the church, followers of Jesus have often paired this practice with practices of, of study and prayer, and those are incredibly important too. But solitude just comes down to being present with God. And sometimes it really may mean doing nothing. Right? The term companionable silence comes to mind. Some of my favorite times with Janelle aren't when we're doing anything. We're just sitting somewhere, TV's off, and we're just holding hands. And that's being present with her. Again, just spend time with God. And maybe it is reading a chunk of the Bible or going through the Lord's Prayer, but you can try different things too. Just talk to him or listen or read a psalm or go for a drive, take a walk, confess, just cry if you need to, or sit in a corner and watch paint dry with him. That's fine too. Because again, just be with 
Jesus. Because that is not only the heart of this practice, this is also the foundation for your life. And now one warning. Because as easy as I can try to make this sound to, to trick you into it, it's also going to be one of the hardest things that you are going to do. In fact, Christian mystics for millennia have said in the same breath that being with Jesus is the most important thing, and yet it is also hard and terrifying and agonizing. Because the noises and distractions of life, though we can see that they are harmful to us, they're also addictive, and we think that they protect us. And so don't enter into the practice of solitude thinking that it's going to be a cakewalk, which is where you walk and people give you free cake. That's another childhood memory. It's not that easy, right? So don't be prepared. Don't expect it. Instead, if you start today or if you're doing it, you know it's the continuation of a lifelong journey of being with Jesus and developing a relationship with him and becoming more like him. And more than anything, again, we need Jesus. And without time with him, right, this kingdom of noise will overwhelm us, distract us, and isolate us. And so are we willing to be alone with God, knowing that it means the wilderness, knowing that it means losing the distractions and the noise that we think protect us? And as you look at your life, are you currently spending time alone with him, even if it's just a few minutes? And if not, what keeps you from entering into the wilderness with him? And are you willing to make time to be with him? And so consider these things today, even. And if you are willing to do so, then make a plan. Just don't leave it as an idea. Figure out where your wilderness is, how you're going to make time, and whether you're willing to just show up and spend time with him knowing that it's probably going to be frustrating and hard. Now, I'm one of those people who need clear examples of how to do very simple things. And so along with the bulletin, there is also a half sheet on this practice, which if you don't have it now, there's a stack on the table in the foyer. And it's from a site called practicingtheway.org led by a guy named John Mark Comer, who's one of the uh, non-dead young Christians I really like. Um, and I didn't quote him at all this morning, but I got a ton of stuff from him, just to be honest. And the site, the website's transitioning from being a program of a church in Portland into its own nonprofit, so it's a bit of a maze to navigate, but they have a lot of helpful tools on there. And so if you're not exactly sure what to do with this practice or how to be alone with God, then try working through the worksheet or through the half sheet just to get an idea of what it could look like for you. Now, in ending, at one point in this article, I used to be a human being. Andrew Sullivan specifically mentions churches. He says this. He says, if the churches came to understand that the greatest threat to faith today is not hedonism, but distraction, perhaps they might begin to appeal anew to a frazzled digital generation. I think he's right, that this is the main battle for us today, distraction. And if this is true, then I think it changes the way we look at Jesus being in the wilderness. Right? His 40 days fasting, being tempted by the devil, what if that wasn't about him being weak? 
What if it was about him being free enough from the noise and distractions to, in the, of the world in order to resist the devil and win? And what if the wilderness, we find, is actually a place of strength for Jesus? And what if it's the same for us? Let's pray. Um, Father, thank you that we can go to you. Thank you that you desire time with us, that you love us, that you care for us, that you are willing to meet us and engage the noise and distractions that we find within. Uh, as we go this week, would you help us make time to be with you? Would you give us the courage to, to enter the wilderness, um, even though it is a place of danger? And through it, would you help us to get a, just a taste of the peace and the joy and the rest that we can find only in you? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for checking out our podcast. Find out more or connect online at easthillsalliance.org.